celebrity Let your weary mind be free And someone kind of famous who you can't see It's time for sleeping with celebrity Hello sleepyheads and welcome to Sleeping with Celebrities. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. On this audio program, as you know, we invite our guests to step out of the limelight and into the nightlight. On this program, for one bedtime, we don't want them to bring their A-game, but rather their Z-game. It is a podcast where you can sleep, you can simply relax, you can take a break from stress and intensity. Just ahead, we'll be sleeping with Gianmarco Cerezi. He's going to talk with me about every theater production he's ever been in as far back as he can remember. But before all that, I invite you to settle in and get comfortable while I tell you about another show on the Maximum Fun Network. Sleepyheads, there's never been a better time to jump on board with the Adventure Zone, the actual play RPG podcast from the McElroy family. They're doing shorter seasons and campaigns, so there's going to be new stories more often. Occasionally, these shorter campaigns will include guests, as well as new and interesting RPG game systems. Starting a new actual play podcast can be intimidating, but with these new, shorter seasons, you won't have to worry about a huge back catalog in order to catch up. That's the Adventure Zone on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, for our guest, Gianmarco Cerezi is an actor, comedian, and podcaster. His podcast is called The Downside with Gianmarco Cerezi. It might be funny if it was called The Downside with John Moe, but he still hosted it. That would be funny. He's been described as a brilliant stand-up comedian by James Corden, and one of the funniest comedians in the world, by funny comedian Pete Holmes. If you're wondering, hmm, is that really true? We have evidence. I implore you to watch him on Netflix's Verified Stand-Up, which premieres on November 28th. John Marco, welcome to Sleeping with Celebrities. Thank you for having me. You know, we like to start bedtime conversations off with a question or two about sleep. Do you sleep in the same position every night? I would say so. I am a side sleeper. Hmm. And uh, I usually start out maybe uh, snuggling with my, my, my girlfriend for about a minute. And then I roll away into a, a little spoon position. Whether she chooses to participate as a big spoon is her call, but I am satisfied either way in my little ball. I see. Do you recall the best night of sleep you've ever had in your life? Oh, God, the best night of sleep. I, I feel like my only memory is it was in high school, and I had pulled an all-nighter, uh, uh, funnily enough, after doing a, a theater uh, production. We took down the set and we would often uh, stay up all night and get drunk on campus. And the following day, I believe I just went to take a nap at 5 p.m. and didn't wake up until 8 a.m. the following morning. And I said, oh my God, that was, a, that was beautiful. That was mm. the only time I think I've ever slept more than eight hours in my entire life. Was there a lot of exciting times at this high school with no rules that you went to? Well, it used to be a school of no rules. This was 
Georgetown Day School, uh, which famously Obama almost sent his children to. Mm. It, uh, it was the first um, integrated school, I believe, in America, and uh, had a reputation later uh, in the 80s and 90s of being like the cool school. You called mm. teachers by their first name. Um, at least in the 80s, I think uh, a lot of the teachers and students were smoking pot together. But when I got there, the rules started to tighten. Ah. And uh, I actually, even though I was a fairly well-behaved child, I got in trouble uh, on that, that night that I just spoke of. Because after a show, you would take down the set you would uh, stay the night, have a little party, and traditionally everyone got drunk, everyone got high. But my year, this was my sophomore year, someone pulled the fire alarm, and uh, mm. thus launching an investigation into ah. the entire night. And I think almost three weeks later, maybe a month, they started interrogating people individually as to what happened that night. And oh. all these adults had to scramble because every adult there knew the kids were drunk. They, they saw us picking up the screws, one screw at a time, going, wow, they, why did they keep falling over? Uh, everyone knew, <laughs> but suddenly we were, we were caught in the claws of uh, school rules and uh, what do you have to tell colleges about what kind of disciplinary uh, actions had to be taken against you, so it was right. a real, a real disaster that I blame for not getting me into all the colleges that I wanted to. Oh, so there was, so that I was going to ask, what was the upside for you? What was the fallout? And is that what made you decide, screw it, I'll be a stand-up comedian? Oh, I, th I sure, I think if you go all the way back. You could see the seeds planted in there. I, I, I think more the, uh, the not trusting the system. Mm. I think that was kind of the one moment of my life that I was, I was a well-behaved kid who didn't really drink or smoke. Uh, and a lot of kids did, of course. And then the one time I did, it, it forced me to write a letter to my colleges as if I were some kind of delinquent. And I think the process of the private school that I paid money to attend forcing me to write colleges saying that I had gotten drunk on campus once while going to school with kids who, got, who were drunk for class made me start to doubt the quote-unquote powers that be writ large. And I think that kind of thinking makes you... A stand-up comedian. So the the drunk kids were dropping the individual screws. Were the stoned kids endlessly fascinated by the treads on the screws? Oh yeah, we were we were exploring the set in a way that we did not as actors. Right. Uh, I I actually I got I got drunk. I think someone brought me uh, vodka in a Gatorade bottle, and mm -hmm. then. I also ate some edibles, and my big mistake is I think there was a big lighting equipment, and I took uh, uh, like big shear cutters and cut a very important wire and made an enemy with the head of the tech department for the rest uh, of my life. I see. Well, let's let's I assume back up here that that this uh, was not your. Uh, only experience with theater. This wasn't your debut performance. Oh, how no. far back do we have to go to get to your debut performance? I think we could we could go all the way back to my parents' divorce, but I won't. I won't. You know, we don't want people to fall asleep too fast. Uh, I I was always a theatrical kid. My parents they they were divorced before I was conscious, but one thing that I did with both of them is we would go to the living room. We would put on, uh, my dad was uh, of the disco era. Mm -hmm. So we would put on, honestly, the song I remember, I remember Donna Summers and It's Raining Men. And uh, we would dance 
in the living room. Uh, uh, my mom, she was a Studio 54 gal. And my dad, uh, older, but, but still enjoyed disco. And even at that age, I would say to my parents, I'd say, we have to get this on a stage. In my mind, and I remember thinking it, I was like, we need to recreate our living room in like, in my mind, I was not thinking off-Broadway theater. I was thinking stadiums. Our living room created in stadiums and people would witness me and my parents dancing. So that need, that thing of, ooh, I'm experiencing something and to complete the experience, it needs to be witnessed by other mm. people, whether you to consider validate that. You. Maybe, maybe, but also just to be to be witnessed. I, I feel like for some it might turn into wanting to be witnessed by God, but for mm. me it was wanting to be witnessed by all my peers. And that you was an only there. child? I'm the oldest, so I consider myself, I was an only child, and then I had it stolen from me by each of my subsequent siblings. And on top of that, I was an only child at my dad's house for 14 years until he Mm. had my little sister. So in a way, I went back and forth from being an only child and then being eventually one of four at my mom's Mm. house. So I think that that certainly gave me... uh, I, I really got to witness uh, the good life and then have it taken away from me every couple days. Mm. Did your siblings go on to be theater kids as well? One, not at all. One is a dancer in LA. Okay. So she is a theater kid in her own right. One, no, it's just one. Just the, others, the others shy away from the limelight. Okay. So... We can consider your first role to be that of ambitious disco dancer. Yes. Uh, where yes, where do fair. we go with this need for audiences from there? Thankfully, I went to schools that that did theater from the very beginning. Uh, I I the, the first couple are a bit hazy, but I do remember my roles certainly. I played the the donkey in uh, something about a soup with a stone. It's like a classic kid's book. Stone soup. Stone soup. I was the donkey in Stone Soup. Stone soup. Mm. Uh, I believe that was kindergarten. Okay. I I remember very little. Then first grade, I believe, was Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. I was sleepy, because I was always sleepy in class. So From all the disco dancing? I imagine so. Okay. Uh, you know, my mom didn't let me have any lines of cocaine like she would have done it back in Studio 54. But then, uh, second grade, this is where I really felt like I was uh, coming to my own, so to speak. Right. Hitting a new uh, gear. By the way, I, sle- Sleepy Dwarf is a very fitting uh, role for this uh, for this podcast, and I appreciate I appreciate that mention. Of course, uh, then second, in grade. Sec- second grade, and this was before I changed schools. I I went out with a bang. I played the prince in the Princess and the Pea, wow. and I I the, that's the one I have pictures of. Purple, f- uh, a fluffy shirt. I was wearing a a golden crown made of felt. And for me, that was a pivotal role because at the end of our one morning only performance, I had a moment where I believe I was supposed to say to the princess, I love you. Mm. And I, I, I can't recall if I pre-planned it or it was just in the moment but when I said I love you, I turned to the audience and I made a gesture that was, was very popular in second grade where I just stuck a finger in my mouth and went, Ugh. and oh. it got 
if if again could could be making it up in my head, but I remember it getting a big laugh, mm. a big laugh. Uh, except for the you know the PE teacher who had directed the production who was not happy. Right. But how did I the princess th- feel about it? Uh, I believe her name was Leany, Leany, and I. I'm sure she was more than happy to have the romantic moment interrupted. Uh, I was not exactly a ladies' man now or then. I see. So for me, that really was a moment where I felt like, oh, I'm, I'm more, I'm better than everyone here. (laughs) (laughs) The hook was set. The bait was taken. Yes, yes. What do they say? The theater, the theater bug had bitten. So from that moment on, I was, if you asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'd say, I want to, I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to be on Broadway. I was, I was not a kid who ever questioned what I wanted to do with my life. Mm. So from there, I uh, switched schools um, I, I did some theater stuff. I, 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 I don't remember it and I'm going to imagine it's because I was not the lead. So wow. I have buried those in the recesses of my memory. The next thing that really pops in my head, I did uh, something about uh, Rome and Pompeii in fifth grade. Wow. I remember in sixth grade, they tried doing a musical. It was called Lewis and Clark, the musical. And uh, again, was not Lewis or Clark, so I don't care that much. But I will always remember the teacher who I, I look back and I think, oh my God, was she like 22, 23? Uh, because at the time she was just adult. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I just remember her name used to be Miss Bufithis and then became Mrs. Oberlander, uh, which was always to to experience your teachers getting married. It was just a a window into adult life that you didn't get if your parents were together. But but she was she she was my first real acting teacher and we did this final rehearsal of Lewis and Clark, the musical, and she opened the floor. She said, does anyone have any questions before our final show later tonight? And a, a, a young a girl named Lacey raised her hand. Miss um, Bufithis at the time said, yes, Lacey. And Lacey said, next year, can we do something that's fun? <laughs> and... Miss Bufithis, I visibly started tearing up and said, all right, you're all dismissed, and ran into the girls' locker room to cry. And it was, uh, and then Lacey, oh, I remember it. I remember it. Lacey said, oh, I didn't mean to. I didn't. And then Lacey started crying. Mm. And uh, it was a real... I think the lesson for everyone that day was make me the lead and there won't be crying. And nobody gets hurt. So thankfully, as I progressed in middle school, I I think my theater talents were a little bit more recognized. I was cast seventh grade as Perchick in Fiddler on the Roof Jr., uh, and who is Perchik in this? Perchik, funnily enough, because there were certainly I'm I'm Jewish, and there were plenty of Jews at at my school, but uh, uh, Perchik is the non-Jew that one of Tevye's daughters falls in love with, much to her father's uh, dismissal. Uh-huh. And uh, it's funny because I'm pretty sure Tevye who was played by an eighth grader, <coughs> was played by a, a goy. A goy in a beard, putting on what would only be regarded now as an anti-Semitic accent. 
And me, the actual Jew, I was relegated to Perchik. And what made this play Fiddler on the Roof Junior? What was Junior about it? Oh, sleepyheads. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a celebration of the best of arts and culture in public radio form. For over 20 years, host Jesse Thorne has interviewed artists and creators about their work and life story. Past guests have included Tom Hanks, Tina Fey, rapper E-40, Weird Al Yankovic, Lin-Manuel Miranda, David Letterman, Sarah Jessica Parker, and more. Bullseye has been featured in Time, The New York Times, GQ, and McSweeney's, which called it the kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. And what made this play Fiddler on the Roof Junior? What was Junior about it? I I I imagine it softened the end where it's clear that like they're about to be in deep shit. I think at the end right. of Fiddler it's intimated that like they are about to be persecuted in some way, shape, or form. And you you have you heard about these ju- they do junior versions of a lot of musicals. Yes, my uh, daughter was in The Lion King Jr. and my other daughter was in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang Jr. What what did The Lion King Jr. do differently? Did Mufasa just uh, twist his ankle? I no, I think Mufasa met the same fate, but there was just a lot more sort of nondescript dancing to signify it. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I feel like they probably cut, they probably just cut anything even remotely sexual or remotely dark. Um, I've heard of so many productions, whether they're sanctioned or not, I've heard of productions of Rent, where instead of AIDS, it's pink eye. I have, uh, I, I don't. I don't know if there's other parts of the plot. I don't know how they function with pink eye as the thing. Right. Um, but I, I do think it's, uh, it's very strange. I think, I think it's, uh, I don't know. There's so many musicals where that doesn't make sense. There should not be a Les Mis Jr. No. It's, it's like when they try to teach a kid's version of a historical matter. I go... Well, now they think a lie is true, as opposed to being like, okay, just do something else. Into the woods, they do the first act and not the second. And not That's the second. crazy. There shouldn't be a Cats Junior, but there probably shouldn't be a Cats Senior either. So that's I agree. For different reasons. Yeah. I agree entirely. Uh, so I, I did Perchick. I believe... I was devastated to not get Tevya, even though mm. as a seventh grader, that would have been uh, caused riots. Um, right. That's not how the pecking order works. Not at all. But I was given my due in eighth grade, much to now Mrs. Oberlander's credit. I, I was cast as Harold Hill in The Music Man. Ah. A a music man. Remind us who Harold Hill is in that particular show. Harold Hill is the uh, classic, uh, handsome scam artist who comes to Iowa, uh, where he he basically uh, gets a bunch of parents to pay money up front for him to teach them how to uh, play musical instruments, and he doesn't know how to teach them. And he takes the money, sets them up for one big concert, and when the parents realize their kids are awful, he has already left town. Uh, in in the Music Man, mm. he falls in love with a librarian, uh, very very much uh, in the spirit of the Taming of the Shrew. This is a librarian who does not like men, and this is of course uh, an antique value system where. If a woman doesn't like men, she just hasn't met the right guy yet. 
He and just that needs is, to try a little harder in this there, way of thinking. Now, here's an example. I know this was Junior, where they took out the song Marion the Librarian, which is basically where Marion says to Harold Hill, I am not interested in you. And Harold Hill proceeds to pressure her through song and dance to go on a date with him. <laughs> and my teacher actually added that number back in because she liked it so much. Oh, okay. So, so you, this was th- PG-13 This was the complex character band. presented to you as an eighth grader. Yes, and it, because they wanted to give everyone a fair chance, which I don't think was a good way to prepare us for the real world, there were two shows. One, another guy played Harold Hill. Ah, and then the yes. other one, Double I casting. played Harold Hill. Double casting. And... Uh, I made. Sh- I went second, which I'm sure they, they knew, to save the best for last. So, were you in a middle school that that went up to eighth grade? You didn't have the the ninth grade middle school then. No, no. Then I uh, had to make a decision. Um, I was choosing between Sidwell Friends and Georgetown Day School. Both, both good private schools. One of my best friends was going to Sidwell. Um, that's ultimately Obama when he was choosing where his kids were going to go to school. It was between those two schools. And, uh, unlike my friend and, uh, Obama, I chose Georgetown day school because of their theater program. It was a, it was a legendary theater program. I even went to Sidwell to interview for the application and the head of their theater department, after you know showing me their show and talking to me said you would do more for sidwell than sidwell could do for you and that whether whether that was a psychological tactic to get me to not go there or if he was a teacher truly giving me some heart-to-heart advice i on his word went to georgetown day school Okay. So then you're at the bottom of the ladder once again. I was, but I went I was running from the moment I got there. I was I was kissing ass and taking names. I uh I was very fortunate to be one of only two or three freshmen to be in 12th night. And the reason why is because the head of the theater department swore that I looked kind of like the senior who was playing. Uh, you'll, you'll, you. I imagine you know the Shakespeare names. Viol, was it Viola? Do you know this? Viola play? in Twelfth Night. Yes. Yes. So uh, uh, an actor, or Viola. Still, Viola. She. Uh, her name was Jessie Barr. Still an actor. Uh, she was a senior and just a force of nature in high school. And fortunately enough, we both had similar schnozzes. And thus, as a freshman, I, I skipped the line and got to play a major role in, in my first uh, play ever at that high school, first semester. Mm. And uh, that set me up for, when I look back on all my education. What, what was the role? Oh, I was Sebastian. I was the twin brother. I see. And uh, is this a pearl I see before me? That's the only line I remember. Is this a pearl I see before me? And uh, that was that was a wonderful time. Uh, You know, it was. uh, I remember feeling so anxious. I used to tell myself before I went out on stage. I would say, Jamarco, your part is small. If you're bad, the show can still be good. That's how I dealt with my anxiety <laughs> at the time. I said, if you're bad, it'll be okay. Uh, which is, you know, you just got to tell yourself some, some stories when you're, when you're that young, feeling anxiety. Right. Uh, then they did one X every year for the the middle of the year I, I i did not pay much attention to those but then i did at the threat at the the 
the possibility of getting in, in trouble in today's climate, but our school did a production of Pacific Overtures, which... Pacific uh, Overtures. Is that Pacific, like South Pacific? Uh, it's, it's by Stephen Sondheim, a beautiful musical about, and this is where the getting in trouble part, about Japan being colonized by uh, uh, the rest of the world. Ah. It is a uh, originally presented on Broadway with a severely white cast, given that I believe every character is uh, is is Japanese, mm. and uh, ultimately they did a revival, I believe, in the '90s with an all with finally, rightfully so, an all Japanese cast. But the progressivism of Broadway had not yet reached. Georgetown Day School, and so we all played uh, people uh, in Japan. And uh, tell me about uh, the makeup choices that you made for this performance. The makeup choices, I believe, were probably uh, loosely informed by Kabuki theater, and even worse, as a freshman trying to gain my keep, earn my keep. I became the de facto accent coach for Pacific Overtures. I, I Were you have, qualified for this position? I had a book called How to Do Accents, and it came with a CD, and I just imitated the British acting teacher doing a Japanese accent and then tried to teach it to people older than me. So I did my best. I did uh, you though? <laughs> oh, I did. I and I did. I did. My big song was playing a sailor, uh, a a uh, a white bad sailor, and you know that's that's okay. Mm. Uh, years later, I I I was hired to host a fundraiser for this high school, and. I was new to comedy, so I submitted my jokes in advance. Mm. And this was a fundraiser to raise a significant amount of money. And my joke was, uh, you know, we did a lot of productions looking back that we sh maybe shouldn't have done, given the casting choices. Uh, Pacific Overtures, uh, where I said I played a, 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 a Japanese person and before they were colonized. Uh, then I said Arabian Nights, which it was my junior year, where I played an Arabian prince. And mm. then the joke was, thank God we never did a production of A Raisin in the Sun. And my theater teacher, who I love dearly, uh, called me and said, please, please do not tell that joke. And uh, so I didn't. I was a good boy. I did uh, sometime later and put it online, but uh, you know, that's what theater productions did back then. They were not exactly careful about that kind of thing. Can we hear a sample of your expert Japanese <laughs> accent that you had gleaned? You know, I I have have retired it for the rest of my life. I'm happy to do uh, any generic accents of Italian. But that's about it. <laughs> Do people, given your name, expect you to have an Italian accent all along? They do. They certainly don't expect me to be as uh, Jewish as I can be when I'm when I'm uh, get uh, heated. But yes, they think I they think I'll be Italian. They think I'll speak Italian. I was just in Italy. And Italians, they come up, they say, buongiorno, come va? And I have to be like, oh, no, 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 I don't speak to Italians. And uh, it's, it's, uh, but I'm Just glad I have the An ethical decision that you refuse to speak to Italians because yeah. they're beneath you? It would, no, it would, you know, I, I think I, I, I used to have a, a bad opinion of Italians, but it's because I grew up in Potomac, Maryland, and the only Italian I knew was my father. So that's not fair to hold that against the entire sure. Italian people. Sure. Okay. So so you've been a sailor. You've been Sebastian. Uh, what happened to your, your 10th grade year, your sophomore year? Sophomore year, uh, 
I did On the Razzle, which is a Tom Stoppard play based on something, based on something, the same story that Hello Dolly is based off of. I don't know if Tom Stoppard originated it, but I played uh, really a role that, the kind of role that if I did theater, uh, this is my lane, I played the butler, the kind of sardonic, uh, a little bit removed from all the drama, just witnessing it and making a smug, smarmy comment. And uh, my like tagline throughout the show was I would raise a glass and say cheers. And it was very comedic. And mm. I remember... I believe when we did shows in high school, it was like two weekends in a row. Um, you know, one Thursday, one Friday, two Saturday, maybe a matinee to end it. And for the Saturday matinee, as often with a matinee or an early show for stand-up, there was no laughter. It, mm. was, it was not going well. And at intermission, the artistic... Uh, the head of the theater department came over to me and I, she said, are you okay? And I burst into tears and I said, why aren't they laughing? Why aren't they laughing? And again, just another, another learning about the art and the pain of a live audience that is always changing. Yes. And I still get the same feeling now. I try to not cry when I'm at the comedy cellar. And I go, why aren't they laughing? But even though I never thought of being a stand-up comedian back then, I, I look back on it in retrospect and I say, you know, all the signs were there. The need for that laugh, mm. the constant desire for approval, uh, even even the dancing in the living room. I'm I'm practically dancing on that stage. I'm I'm, I'm all over that stool the same way I was all over the love seat. Uh, dancing to disco in kindergarten, waiting so, for the stadium audience to uh, to enjoy very your much performance. So. Though preferably without my parents on the stage, that that part that was something that did change. Yeah. So, what was the play where you got in trouble for for getting drunk and staying up all night? I believe, I believe it was on the razzle, or. Later that year, we did How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Mm. Uh, classic, classic musical. It was, I believe it was on the razzle. That sounds most correct. And uh, it was such a good night. Because I should also add, as I said before, I was a kind of a goody two-shoes kid. I had plenty of friends who were drinking. And I... I wouldn't really participate. I had tried my dad's scotch a couple times when he went to bed. He never really drank the hard stuff. And I, you know, I got sick and I threw up the next day. And that day at school, getting drunk with uh, my peers in a space where I felt respected, uh, it was so thrilling. It was such an amazing night. And then that guy, his name's Max, he's still still in the biz, he pulled the fire alarm, and even that was fun, because there we were, I was probably drunk and high for the first time in my life, outside, and we while we waited for the fire department or someone to check the school, we played theater games in the parking lot, and it was truly, I look back on those high school theater days and I, I think nothing was nothing was better because it was it was before I knew my shortcomings as a performer. High school was the time where like when I was singing, I was belting my guts out and I thought I was a fucking rock star. I did you I mean I've 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 skipped past the musical theater summer camps but I did mm. summer camps every year, and my my most joyful memory was I did one where we did a number from a chorus line, a song from a, a chorus line called Montage. It's about a 
10 minute song uh everyone sharing all these dancers sharing moments from their childhood and there's one climactic moment towards the end where uh, uh, everyone's on the back line and they're like pumping themselves up and I think the, the, they're talking about getting older and going through puberty and the lyric is like suddenly I'm 17 and suddenly I'm 17 and suddenly and then it goes into this big dance break and I can remember thinking that I was nailing that dance break that I had that dance perfectly and I know now there is no way that it was good. <laughs> I like to dance. I've taken dance classes. I was not made to dance. Mm. And Why do you know I this can, now? I just took enough dance classes. I, I, I think I did advanced beginner hip-hop classes long enough to go, oh I will never be intermediate. You will have to come up with a new term between advanced beginner and it, advanced beginner is for people to feel like they've made progress when they have not. And I, I, but I just remember when I was dancing like that then, I thought I was making such great art and I was filled with, with joy. Now, if I were to be cynical about comedy, uh, for example, my dream is to do a comedic dance a la Neil Patrick Harris opening the Tony Awards. Something mm. where I can move but not be perfect and it still be fun. And in a way, comedy allows you to explore art forms without necessarily having the technical efficiency uh, that you normally would have to have for that form. If you are singing to be funny, you can get away with being flat. If you are dancing to be funny, you can trip and it might actually enhance the performance. So in a way, comedy allowed me to participate in my fields of interest even if I lacked the natural talent to be an expert in some of them. When did the dream die? About 10 minutes ago, as I <laughs> discussed this, for me, it, it, was, it was a slow, painful death. First, was, Wasn't a revelatory moment? It, it was not. I, I went to college with a voice teacher who, uh, almost, almost with, with tones that a, a cult leader would rely on, promised me, if a cult leader were to promise you heaven, uh, this voice teacher promised that I would never crack again. I would be able to sing if I was sick, if it was cold outside, if I had the flu, and that was the promise. And I believed it so much that I practiced her vocal method tirelessly for all of college. I had teachers in college with their own vocal methods, which I don't think were particularly good either. Uh, I think teaching voice is, is a bit of a pseudoscience and often relies on the natural abilities of the singer. But that aside, I really believed it. And after four years, when I found myself still struggling with certain notes, I think I gradually lost my passion for singing and then I pivoted to acting. I joined an acting company where the teacher was a, a genius of, of acting technique, and I felt like I was getting better. Uh, but then I moved to New York, and I couldn't book work to save my life. Mm. Uh, going to a conservatory, I think, four years is far too long unless you are building a network in this horrible, horrible industry. My class in college was 11 people by the time we graduated, two of which are still in the industry. I came to New York with, with no connections, no real leads. Uh, it, was, it was brutal. And I tried. I did little theater things here and there. I joined acting companies. I had little TV roles. 
But ultimately, the revelation, I would say, was I wrote a play for myself because uh, that's what you do when you don't book acting work. You become a writer. Sure. And it was a two-hander. I was autobiographical. I talked to the audience. And I had a friend of mine who said, you should focus on this talking to the audience part. It just seems to be getting more feedback, more excitement, more laughter. What was the title of the play? It was called Less Than 50%. Mm. And it ran at the Fringe Festival, uh, which was a very thrilling but exhausting you're really in the heart of independent theater. And it got transferred to fringe encores. A producer attached themselves, and it ultimately had a, a, a short-lived, uh, not critically lauded run at 59 East 59 theaters. But ran for a month for, you know, 40, uh, let's see, 40, 36 shows. And this was as I was falling in love with stand-up, and I would do my show, and then run to LOL Comedy Club, which closed a week ago. Uh, should have closed a couple years ago. And I would do a, the 11.45 p.m. show. And I started to get tired. I started saying, you know what? I don't like even doing my own play, the same play, every single night. And I think a mix of falling in love with stand-up, being bored with my own play, and, most importantly, not really advancing as an actor, that I just went full line and sinker into stand-up comedy. And I have not regretted it at all. All right. You're better now. You're cured. I have a new disease. Uh, <laughs> but at least one that I can actively, I'm not waiting by the phone for someone else to give me a gig. Right. And to experience your stand-up comedy, the audience need not wait by the phone, but tell them what they, what they could be doing. You could be watching my set on Netflix's new verified stand-up, which will be on Netflix November 28th. And I am part, they have not done this for a while, but uh, some other quote-unquote young, quote-unquote up-and-coming comedians doing short sets, 10-minute uh, sets. And uh, I, I gave it the best that I got. So if you want to check that out, that's a good place to start. Refreshingly Japanese accent-free. <laughs> yes, but funnily enough, a reference uh, about accents within the set itself, which shows that that uh, in some ways you never change. Mm. But check it out. I uh, I promise it's constructed in a way that that it will be enjoyable for all all peoples of the world. If somebody came to you and offered you the role of Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof Junior today, would you accept it? Would it be at a middle school? Yes. Then 100%. I think that would be the funniest show of all time. A 35-year-old Jew playing Tevya with ideally non-Jewish entire seventh cast. Seventh graders all of around. Seventh graders, yes. And, and one of them thought they were going to get Tevya. And they, they, they really deserved it. It was their time. And then I got it instead. 100%. Make a documentary about it, too. I want to watch that documentary right now. <laughs> John Marco Ceresi, thank you so much, and good night. Thank you. Good night. Well, sleepyheads, I hope you enjoyed learning about John Marco's scholastic theater career as much as I did. You know, something I like to do at the end of my day is make a mental catalog of things that I experienced and or learned. So, if you don't mind, I'm going to make a list of takeaways from my conversation with John Marco right now, while it's fresh in my mind. One, 
Back in the good old days of Georgetown Day School, students could call teachers by their first name. Two, Dancing to It's Raining Men by the Weather Girls is a good father-son bonding activity. Three, drama teachers are not unlike cult leaders. Four, advanced beginner is a term for people to think they've made progress when they have not. Five, to be successful in show business, just repeat the following. If I'm bad, it's okay. The show will still be good. Six, the pain of live theater can be summarized in one sad question. Why aren't they laughing? And seven, pulling fire alarms can get you into quite a bit of trouble. And it is fun. Okay. Uh, I'm going to turn in myself. Thank you for sleeping with me and my guest, Gianmarco Cerezi. You can follow Sleeping With Celebrities on Twitter and TikTok with the handle at sleepwithcelebs. On Instagram, the handle is at sleepwcelebs. Our email is sleepwithcelebs at maximumfun.org. Our music is provided by The Winterbowers. The show was senior produced and edited by Laura Swisher. Swish. And this is a production of Maximum Fun and Papuchik. I'm John Moe. Night Night. Maximum Fun. A worker-owned network of artist-owned shows. Supported directly by you.